perhaps you noticed in your bulletin, there is a, a little piece in there about a uh, RBA semi-annual meeting. Uh, you may not pay much attention to this normally, but I would just want you to know that um, this, this year, they're going to have it at Green Pines. Um, this is the first time in over seven years, I don't know when or if they've had it here before. Um, so that's going to be uh, several churches uh, coming together, um, and they're going to be talking about uh, missions in India. Uh, there's going to be uh, a fellow by the name of Bihu Thomas. Uh, is going to be talking about the Transformation India Movement. And so, so I know some of you especially are interested in India. Uh, this is not Finney Matthews, whom we've uh, partnered with in the past, but it's someone uh, very similar. And so I just want you to take note of that. Uh, it's too late for supper. I think they've already had the reservation deadline, but uh, uh, you don't have to be a, a messenger or anything like that to come to that and to attend. Uh, so I, I think it, it might be worth noting there uh, as we are especially hosting it um, uh, for, our, for our attention. Now, uh, we're going to continue a um, discussion uh, that we started last week. Last week was a prayer um, about marriage. Uh, especially marriage in North Carolina, and, and we kind of covered a lot of subjects, a lot of issues. As uh, you guys are hearing more and more about the uh, political uh, life that we're in, May 8th being a primary day to uh, also make a, a decision about vote in regards to the definition of marriage in North Carolina and a constitutional amendment. So we are hearing a lot about this, um, and I want us to look at it as believers um, not just about homosexuality, but also about marriage in general, and that's why we talked about it last week and what it means to uphold marriage as believers. Um, but this this uh, this morning, I'm going to take a, a different tact than I normally ever do. I, I typically we're going to have one text, we're going to go and explain the text, but uh, I'm going to do a topical. Uh, <laughs> I never thought I'd say this, but I'm going to do a topical uh, talk. I'm going to call a sermon, uh, but uh, we're going to look at this issue. And, and the reason why um, is uh, last week uh, a couple of guys uh, shared with me a um, radio program they heard from, uh, I think, North Carolina uh, Family Policy, I think was the name of the uh, Family Policy Watch, or not Family, Poli- North Carolina Policy Watch uh, was the name of the radio show that was on yesterday morning, or last week's uh, Sunday morning uh, uh, on air, and I was listening to it, and they were talking about a marriage uh, rally that was going on in Wilson, and, and someone had made the statement within that marriage rally that uh, um, that home, same-sex marriage is banned in the Bible, and, and so they were arguing that it should be banned in the Constitution, and that's um, despite the, the role of church and state, regardless of, of that, uh, the, the woman responded by laughing. And said, so, well, that lets you know how little they read their Bible. And uh, that comment struck me. Like, okay, she is operating as though if you are for the marriage amendment, then you have very little understanding of your Bible. If you uh, believe that same-sex marriage is a wrong thing, then you have very little understanding of the Bible. And that was certainly the impression she wanted to leave the audience. Um, I don't know if she was just being intentionally deceptive um, or just unaware. 
of, of what the Bible says. And, and so I didn't want anyone listening to that have questions about what does the Bible say about same-sex marriage. Now, the, the thing about this that I have to be careful about is that though the Bible does state it as sin and as wrong, it is not to the level of sin that is unforgivable. In fact, it is very much on the same level of sin as lust, as adultery, as lying, as greed, as pride, as slandering, as gossip. You get the picture, okay? And um, I, I just I want to want to say that from the very beginning, that though I'm going to take some attention and talk about this. You need to understand, we need to have the whole counsel of of Scripture to bear on this. Yes, it talks about it as sin. It is not something to be lifted up as a standard. uh, But nor is it such a degree, a a sphere in and of itself, that merits this extra uh, attention any more so than the other sins in our life. Now... uh, we're going to get your Bibles out, and uh, we're going to be flipping a lot because it's a topical <laughs> talk, and that's what you do. Uh, we're going to talk about all the various scripture passages um, that are on this subject. Um, so the very first one, as I mentioned last week, is Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we, uh, I mentioned last week as we were praying together that this is foundational. Uh, in fact, a lot of the New Testament passages will go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. And so we're going to just go from the beginning and look at some Old Testament passages and then, and then talk about the arguments against the Old Testament passages. Genesis 2, verse 18 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The word helper fit is... According to or opposite in accordance to needs, uh, and helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. There's so much here, y'all. There's so much I want to say about this uh, that, that pertain to life. Uh, but just note, man is doing this by himself at this point. And in naming names, there's a sense of giving authority over or, or having authority over. We see that in the Bible of when there's uh, someone naming a name. And so the man gave names to all livestock, the birds, the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found or helper fit for him. So Adam got it. I'm, I'm, I'm messed up. I need somebody. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And so you have here a picture of them being the same in equality, but also very different. It's all wrapped up together in this announcement by Adam. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. Now, why was that verse written? Was it written for Adam's benefit? Adam did not have a father and mother. It was written for our benefit, for all those who would come behind. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so this is the precedent of creation, and it speaks volumes throughout time uh, as to the uh, importance of marriage and the definition of marriage, and Jesus himself goes back to this. Now, let's go into the Old Testament. I just want you to understand this was given before the law, but when we look at the law, it certainly supports this. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 and 14. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Leviticus 18, verse 22 through 23. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And so you have what I would say a, a pretty clear text. Um, in fact, those who are uh, supportive of same-sex marriages often will never deny what the Old Testament says, but will discount the importance of the Old Testament to the believer today. When I was in college in the 90s, uh, and, and really we saw this, this rise, this question of uh, same-sex marriage and, and it being biblical, uh, really since the late 80s. So even in the early 90s and the mid-90s, there were still those who were trying to make the text say something other than it was saying. And they were doing mental gymnastics to try to figure this out. Most don't do that anymore. It's, it's a pretty clear uh, text in Leviticus about what that means. Now, here's where the criticism often comes in. Well, Jesus never mentions about same-sex marriage. He never condemns same-sex marriage. And the Old Testament is no longer valid to the New Testament believer if we're going to go by the ethics of the Old Testament, then we might as well start making sure that we never eat pizza that has cheese and meat together and forget hamburgers with cheese because there's a, a strict instruction in the Old Testament not to mix the dairy with the meat. Make sure we don't trim the edges of our beards and make sure that we don't have mixed garments in what we're wearing because the Bible forbids that as well. And so that's, that's often the argument that takes place. Well, all right, go by the Old Testament. Let's go by the Old Testament, but understand it's not how we live today. And so that's what's often said. Now, let me just kind of speak to this as to the validity of the Old Testament, especially Jesus and what he has to say about that. The first thing I would want your attention toward is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19. Jesus, in referring to the Old Testament, this is in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and which is largely regarded kind of the, is the, uh, what it means to be a believer the, uh, in kingdom living. This is kingdom living lifestyle, the manifesto given to us in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus, in giving the opening remarks toward this, makes this statement. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus, in referring to the Old Testament, says that he has come to fulfill the law. He did not come to abolish it, nor even to dismiss the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it. 
So there is something to be said about how the, the moral law is given to us in the Ten Commandments as well as in Leviticus that Jesus is saying, I'm not going to dismiss that. I'm going to fulfill that. And so this idea that we've got that anything in the moral law is no longer applicable to us today, well, Jesus seems to differ with that. So I've, I've come to fulfill it, not to dismiss it, not to abolish it. In fact, when asked what's the most important commandment, he said, love God with all your heart, soul, might, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, all of the commands hinge upon this or based upon this. In other words, you want to know what it looks like to love God? Read the law. You want to know what it looks like to love others? Read the law. It's all summed up by these two commands, love God and love others, but it's fleshed out in how we read the law. And so you say, well, all right, well, does that mean that we need to not eat dairy with meat? Because I've got a real problem with that. All right. Um, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, first of all, we see that Jesus Christ, in taking the sacrificial laws and the ceremonial laws, uh, he, he fulfills through him. So we no longer sacrifice the animals because Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of that. The ceremonial laws, the Sabbath, the festivals, Jesus fulfills that. They point to him. They're shadows that point to him. Now, when we talk about the laws of separation, all right, laws of separation, which you see especially in Leviticus where the Israelites were coming into Canaan and then you've got the different religions and different people and, and you've got these instructions about this is what it means to be separate, that you're to be holy, you're not to be like them, you're to be other than them. What you've got there are things specifically tied to them, but they still point to Jesus. They point to Jesus. If you're going to talk about the, the mixed garments, we're going to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the pure one without any mixture within him. And so when we try to take these Old Testament laws of being separate from others, the real point of it is in the New Testament to say that's in Christ. We are separate in the New Testament era by being in Christ and following him, loving him. And so we kind of direct all of our uh, our decisions of the here and now as to whether or not it helps us to be in Christ or not. This applies to music, applies to dress, applies to a whole world of things. So what you find instead is that Jesus takes the moral law and intensifies them. He, he, he brings, um, well, he makes them internal, internal. Whereas before in the law they were external, Jesus takes them and internalizes them. Such as when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, well, you know, you've heard that you should not murder. And he said, we shouldn't even hate because hate is murder in your heart. He said, you've heard said that you should not commit adultery. We shouldn't even look upon a woman to lust after her because that's, that's adultery in your heart. And, and, and then he applies the, the thing about divorce. He says, it's not just whether or not you fulfill the technical laws of the law of Moses. He says, no, you need to understand that you're a one man uh, woman and a one woman man. And that is to be for life. And so he takes these moral laws and he internalizes them and intensifies them. Uh, and so when we're talking about the moral law of the, uh, of the Old Testament, we find that in the New Testament, it has a greater uh, um, impact in our life. Now, uh, we, we find that Jesus fulfills all these. And so you ask, well, why didn't Jesus speak specifically about homosexuality? 
Well, first of all, it was unnecessary. The people he was talking to were Jews. They were hardcore. They lived Leviticus. They already read Leviticus and lived by it, and they didn't question Leviticus. It was unnecessary. Now, you would say, well, the people of the Jews in Leviticus had a proper understanding of Leviticus. Now, where has Jesus ever, when confronting the, the Jews of his days, and they had an improper understanding of the law, where is there ever a time where Jesus says, well, I'm just not going to speak about that because it's going to cause too much trouble. It was Jesus' tendency to go right to the heart of things where there was a, a, disru- a, dis- um, a disagreement with how they practiced in the word. Jesus would call it out. He never did call that out. And he never had to speak to the issue of homosexuality because it wasn't necessary in the society that he was at. There is no question. Anyone who does any uh, aspect of research, if you want to know what the Jews believed in the first century, there is no question what they believed in regards to homosexuality. It's not a, it's not a, a question for those who, who seek this out. It's understood where they, where they stood in regards to same-sex marriage. Now, at the same time, if you're going to go with the fact that Jesus never spoke about it, Therefore, it's okay. Well, I'm not sure Jesus really spoke about rape either. Or incest. Polygamy. I, I can't call where he spoke about polygamy. What, what I'm saying is that argument, if you're going to say that, it's going to open up a whole world of things that's very clearly in the word of God. That Jesus never really had a need to talk about in that, that day and time. Now, What we do find is that Jesus does affirm Genesis 2 that we've just read. In fact, Matthew 5, verse 32, in that Sermon on the Mount, uh, he's he's asked about the issue of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife accepts the ground of sexual immorality. And right now he's quoting from Deuteronomy when he says that. Makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so he's hearkening back to Deuteronomy, but it's even more clear in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 2 through 12. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, now see he's quoting Genesis 2, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And the house of the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So when asked about the status of marriage and what's permissible, he goes back to Genesis 2, which is also the same base of why we don't believe in same-sex marriage. And so he goes back to the very same precedent that I brought to you from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. Now, also, Jesus' followers were pretty clear. Those who Jesus himself said 
that the Holy Spirit is going to come and instruct them in all the things that he was not able to instruct them in. And so when they start writing about this issue, they are very clear about it. Now, remember, the followers of Jesus, they don't just remain among the Jews. They go out. They go out to the Gentiles. They go to uh, Rome, even. Go to Corinth and Thessalonica, where in the Roman uh, culture, and it doesn't take too much studying to figure this out. The Roman culture had homosexuality as part of society. Sometimes we think, well, we live in a different age, and the Bible's so outdated. As society in America goes further and further away from typical Christian values, it becomes more and more like Rome, in which the Christian faith was birthed. And so I just want you to understand that these guys going out, they are dealing with people who have homosexuality as part of their life. And so what do they say? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 27. Therefore, God gave them up and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their woman exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Well, it seems pretty clear. Paul's especially talking about uh, homosexuality. Some people will say, well, you know, this word word refers to uh, unnatural exchange. And that these folks were just being unnatural and they were really homosexuals, but they were acting like heterosexuals and it was unnatural. And so Paul is actually condemning that. Well, the problem with that is that Paul is not speaking to individuals. He's speaking about mankind as a whole. And so it doesn't necessarily relate to what they're saying uh, is the interpretation here. Paul is very uh, is in Corinth as he's writing the book of Romans. It's very probable that all he had to do was look out his window to see the examples in Romans chapter 1. And what he's bringing out is that here they have rejected the created design of men and women, and by so doing, they are rejecting the creator. By rejecting the created design, they are rejecting the creator, and that's the point that Paul is bringing, that they have served a creature rather than creator. They are working against him in this. These same words that they they say is referring to an unnatural exchange you see later on used by folks like Plato and uh, Josephus, and Philo, and Plutarch as referring to homosexuality. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. And so he's referring specifically in regards not to just sexual immoral, immoral idolaters, adulterers, but also those who practice homosexuality. And, and you see there's going to be a, somewhat of a, a kinship with the Ten Commandments. And we, we talked about that not too long ago. And so Paul is, is very clear, not only to the Romans, but to those also in Corinth of, of what this is and that it is regarded as sin. And that if you are one who says, I will practice this without repentance and I will not uh, regard this as wrong and as a sin, the Bible is simply saying that is a mark that you are not in the kingdom of God. As well, I think this also applies to sexual immorality, immorality as it says very clearly. Greedy. Uh, We've got to be careful. If we say materialism is okay, and we're not a repentant of that, it is a mark we're not in the kingdom of God. There's a lot said in that passage, but I want you to note it does also refer to homosexuality. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11, you, you see again, Now we know that law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murders. Again, you see the Ten Commandment theme here. The sexual immoral Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. When I read those who were around Jesus, who were taught by Jesus, by the Spirit of God, who were living in first century Rome, and where homosexuality was practiced, it wasn't put in and defined as marriage, but it was practiced, and these guys say very clearly... This is wrong. This is a sin that must be repented of. So, those who say that Jesus never really spoke about this, I said, well, I don't know if you've really have carefully read the Bible and what it does say, and what those who were taught by him did say, and what he affirmed in Genesis 2. Well, well, some will say, well, it's the trajectory of Scripture. In other words, it's, it's what it will, it's leading to. Kind of like uh, polygamy may not have been addressed in the Old Testament, but then it was addressed in the New Testament, and then it becomes more clear. Or some would say, well, you know, it doesn't really tell nations to abolish slavery, but the trajectory of Scripture is there so that the believers in England and then later in, in America would have taken that on because it was the trajectory. The only problem with that is that there is no progression of, of thought change in regards to sexual sins. From the beginning all the way through to the end of the New Testament, there is no progression. It remains the same from the beginning to the end. From Genesis into Revelation, it's, it's mentioned there as well, that it is sin and there is no development. To have a trajectory, you've got to have some kind of change. And there is no change there. I would just bring to your attention that the church leadership and the church as a whole for two millenniums have had the same view 
on marriage. And really, it hasn't been up for debate for the last 20 years. Just something to consider. In the era of the Roman Empire, where it was practiced, it was still consistently the same view for the church. Now, I want you to understand as we go through this, um, I've, I've leaned on a lot of sources in this. I would recommend one by Wayne Grudem. Uh, politics according to the Bible um, to be an excellent resource. I've leaned on others like Tim Wilkins, um, Daniel Heinbach, professor over at Southeastern Seminary, um, J.D. Greer. Um, there's been quite a few that that you can go to and look to, and I have gone to to uh, to look at some of this. But some of the question still is, well, what's the big deal? Why do we have to? talk about this on Sunday. Why is this in the politics? Why, why, pastor, are you even bringing this up? What's the big deal? First of all, I would say it's an issue of lordship for the believer. For the believer in Jesus Christ, when we follow Christ, we have now put agreement with Christ on the back burner. What do I mean by that? Submission to authority is not the same thing as agreement with authority. It's just not the same thing. And if you feel like you have to agree before you obey, you're going to have a lot of problems with God. Because there's a lot of things you, we don't even comprehend. And so it's a lordship issue for us as followers in Jesus Christ. And it supersedes any kind of sense of agreement. But there's also the sense of design that is given to us in Scripture. First uh, Corinthians, and we talked about this last week, Ephesians uh, talks about 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18, talks about the idea that we are the temples of the Spirit of God and who we are joined with physically matters because we are the temple of God. We've been bought by Him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 talks about, uh, verse 31 through 32, talks about the design of marriage representing the gospel, that it is important for us as believers to uphold the gospel by upholding marriage because they flow from one another. The marriage flows from the gospel, flows from Christ, which is why marriage is no longer needed in heaven because it's a shadow that points to Christ. As well as, of course, Genesis 2, verse 24 through 25. Tim Wilkins, who is uh, a believer that lives in the Wake Forest area, uh, and uh, he was a uh, practicing homosexual in earlier in his life, and God has changed him, saved him, working with him now to minister to churches. And he helped me out bring this idea is that, you know, we talk about diversity a lot. Unity in diversity. But same-sex marriage is the exact opposite of that. You see, God made man and woman different from one another to complement one another and to bring our ways of thinking together to reflect the image of God. And so when we say that, that there is same-sex marriage is a valid option, we are saying that the, the gender doesn't matter anymore. It just doesn't matter anymore. It is, every once in a while, some will say, well, you know, it's a lot easier to like someone of my same sex. It's easier to get along with someone of my same sex. We think the same way. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with you on that. Yeah, of course you do. Women will get along with women. They don't have to be insulted all the time by guys. 
clean up their mess, you know. And guys can talk and laugh and beat each other up, not worry about their emotions, you know. And, and that's, you know, <laughs> just go in a dorm <laughs> of same sex. It's always interesting uh, to go in the guy's dorm. Um, and so man bring, uh, God brings men and women together that think different. Yes, it's going to be a little hard because you think different. But that's the point is that there is a need for one another to balance one another out. The, the design that God had made. God has made a unity that comes from a diversity of gender to complement one, one another. So, what about the same-sex attraction? And I would just bring to you that the cause of same-sex attraction really isn't the significant point. I know we have made a big deal about whether someone has been born this way or not. I present to you that it doesn't really matter. Most that I know that I've talked with who are believers would tell me, they, and, and some that are not believers would say, I never chose this. I never chose this direction. It just, I found myself attracted to this direction. And I'm not going to argue with them about that. I think it's irrelevant to argue with them about that. Folks have said that there are some people who are genetically disposed, are predisposed to alcoholism. I don't think I'm going to argue with that. I think it's possible for that to happen. But just because you're born with a certain direction or a certain desire doesn't make it morally acceptable. It's not even morally neutral. I could have a desire to covet. I was born with that desire to covet. That doesn't make it neutral. I have a desire to hate. I remember throwing a stone at one of my best friends. Hit him in the head. Why did I do that? He did something I didn't like. Did you want to kill him? You know, I really wasn't thinking that. I just wanted to hurt him. Jesus said, well, that's hate. That's murder. Oh, well, who taught you that? I can't blame that one on my dad. Uh, you know, I've seen him get angry, but, you know, I can't blame it on him. I can't even blame it on my mom. I, I think I was just genetically predisposed to throw a rock at my buddy. What's that called? Well, in the Bible, we call that sin. It's sin. What I'm bringing out to you is that the cause is, is really not that important. Because we're all born sinners. It's what we do with it. Tim Wilkins, in in addressing this, mentioned that he called same-sex attraction or orientation, he called that temptation. I thought, well, yeah, okay. I can see that. Well, some would say, well, you know what? All right. Why can't we just agree to disagree on this issue? I mean, after all, we've got all kinds of denominations that don't agree about stuff. Why don't we just form a new denomination? All right? Why don't we just agree to disagree on this issue? The problem with that is that the Bible is very clear that this issue is sin. There's some things I cannot agree to disagree on. One of them is whether or not something is a sin. If the Bible clearly states that it is. I will agree that someone can be wrong. 
okay? But we can't just say life is hunky-dory if I have any love for you, any love for God. I'm going to be praying for you to know the power of God, the grace of God in this. Just as I hope you would pray for me if I have a tendency of throwing rocks at you. All right? There's some things you can't agree to disagree about. So, here's the the next question we've got. Well, why can't we just stay out of politics? And, honestly, I think this is, is a pretty good question. And one I... I tend to lean toward, personally. My, my thought is, all right, we're going to change the amendment, but what's that going to do? The problem is in the heart of man, and the solution is not found in the, the, the political codes. I know that. That's why I preach the gospel. That's why I teach the Bible. That's why I pray for, parts, for hearts to change. And so why can't a church just focus on the gospel and let that be our main thing? Because once we dabble in in politics, then we become known for that. And I would say that probably needs to be the the general tendency of our church. The church I'm at, I think, needs to be that general tendency. But there are exceptions to that. There are exceptions when there is something so very clearly spelled out in the Bible as a sin that has such ramifications to the future generations of a country that I believe that the same-sex, issue, same-sex marriage issue does have, then there needs to be points where a church does something different. For example, if we were in the 1860s and uh, we were looking back with the view of history, it wouldn't quite mean the same to say, Let, you know what, let's not deal with this issue of slavery, let me just preach the gospel and let that change the hearts. But slavery changed the nation and the generations of it. When we're talking about civil rights, there were many churches in the 60s that said, you know what, that's not our issue. Let me just preach the gospel. But Martin Luther King Jr. appealed to a higher authority than just the politics and we look back on it a little bit different. When Roe vs. Wade came out and the issue was about abortion, it just wouldn't do to say, you know what, let me just preach the gospel when there are untold hundreds of thousands of children that would be impacted into the millions of children that would be impacted by that decision. In the 1930s and 40s in Germany, it was kind of the, the idea of the Lutheran church to say, you know what, there's some troubling political issues on the rise with this Nazism and Adolf Hitler, and there's some troubling things being said, but let's just stick to the church. Let's stick to our issues. And by the time the church woke up and realized, my goodness, if we don't do something, they're going to wipe us all out because first they came to the Jews, and they came to these others, and now they're coming for us, and now there's not enough of us to make a difference. And the confessing church was born, birthed in Germany in that time uh, with men like uh, Niemöller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but there wasn't enough of them anymore to make a difference. There are some times when we see the impact and know the impact was going to be made in society. 
We know what it says in the Bible and the Word of God. That for the sake of the Word of God, for the sake of the impact that it makes on society, that we drop out of the norm and step in. Then there's the question of, well, it's wrong. Okay, I agree with you, Pastor. You said it in the Bible. But why do we have to force biblical ethics on our society? Because these people aren't believers. Why do we need to do that? Because, well, you know, we wouldn't want it if the Muslims took, had a majority. We wouldn't want them forcing some of their things on us. And you can't force genuine faith anyway. Well, here's an answer to that. It is true that you cannot force someone to be a believer. And any government system that takes it down that road is wrong. Separation of church and states has very important, valuable characteristics to it. To our faith, as well as to our country. However, laws cannot be separated from values. Laws cannot be separated from values. We all like to eat meat, but we don't want to eat children. Why? Well, there's a value there. There's something significant there that that changes that. And it's impossible to separate our values from our faith perspective. How do we determine what's important? It's going to be ultimately by what we believe exists. And so to say that we're going to have some kind of legal code without some kind of value system that's not impacted by faith is living in a bubble of unreality. And the question really all it becomes is, what's the faith perspective and what's the values? Our laws are made up from the majority of the people. But the majority of the people isn't always right. Our laws are made up from research, science. But science, apart from values, is a scary thing. Our laws also are made up of a Judeo-Christian ethic. All three of these are important. But the question often becomes, well, who interprets the Judeo-Christian values? Who gets to interpret that? And that's an important question in this. When we consider this, this view of same-sex marriage will make a difference in society. The arguments used to support same-sex marriage are the same arguments that could also be used to legitimize other things that we don't guard as acceptable. Polygamy, incest, marriages with children. I was reading one editorial that was coming out in the Henderson, Hendersonville area, part of our state, it came out last week. And someone said, well, what, what should be our definition of marriage if it's not one man and one woman? And he said, well, how about this? How about if uh, a, a loving, a part, two partners in a loving relationship together? I think, really? So now the institution is defined by an emotion, by a sentiment, and all it takes is for me to love them? Can you see how this could go? In all kinds of crazy directions. 
I've seen quite a few folks who have a love for their pet that rivals a love for their spouse or children or any other human being. There's some things to consider. Some of us say, so what's the big deal? I mean, if we make this constitutional change, you're going to still stay married. No one's changing that, are they? I mean, you're still going to be married to Julie. You're still, right? I mean, what's the big deal? Why don't we just let everyone else experience that? Well, one, it redefines what I have. It redefines what I have. Why is that important when society views what I have differently now? Let me tell you why that's important. I'm going to go ahead and use a story and out it. It's humorous, I hope. Um, this past week I was in Canada. I was in, um, in a square. We were, see, see, some of you already know this story. Uh, I was in the square. We were praying about uh, looking at uh, future partnerships and work in this area, uh, which is all kinds of potential, and, and pray about that. But uh, in this square at night, I saw uh, this guy in a mascot as uh, a maple leaf. Canada, you know, Canadian maple leaf right there in Toronto. Uh, I think, hey, check that out. This guy is in a mascot of a maple leaf, a green maple leaf. That's interesting. Usually they're red, but they're green. I've seen green maple leaves. Uh, I thought, this would be a great photo op. Uh, I went running and uh, had uh, Phil... And Robert Reckup were running just as fast with their cameras. And I uh, got there and took the picture. And, and I was reading this little, this little maple leaf after they took the picture. And it said, cannabis. <laughs> I'm like, ooh. Some bells are going off in my head. That's not a good word. I was looking and I said, did Phil and Robert see that? And in case there was any doubt, some, a guy came running up and handed us brochures. Hey, cool, man. We're going to have a march, a marijuana march. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Let me tell you, I thought I was taking a picture with a, a maple leaf. And I, I looked at it again this morning just to make sure. And it wasn't the shape of a maple leaf, all right? <laughs> a totally different shape from a marijuana plant. But I thought it was a maple leaf. Someone comes and redefines what I'm sitting next to. Do you think it matters? It matters. Whether or not I'm taking a picture with a maple leaf or a marijuana plant. Listen, how it's defined makes a difference. If I'm coming in and I'm getting married, and then society, an amendment redefines it, the society views it totally different. Yes, it matters to my marriage, but also it matters to how my children grow up. The product of our marriage and our children, the society they grow up in, what is defined for marriage for them? It matters. No, no one's going to make me divorce my wife, but they're going to view our marriage differently. And then, how my children grow up in the society I live in is viewed differently. Now, listen. The Bible is pretty clear about homosexuality, but it's also very clear in saying that homosexuality is a sin. It was and is the thing that when Jesus goes to the cross and says, Father, isn't there some other way? Is there, is there, is there another cup? Lord, if, if there's some way, let this cup pass from me. And, and the Father says, no, there is no other cup. 
You go to the cross. And he goes to the cross. And when he's on the cross, he fills the forsaking aspect of God because Jesus becomes my sin. What does Jesus become? Jesus becomes lust, greed, pride. He becomes homosexuality. He becomes on that moment. He becomes that. God forsakes him. What does God think about that? He says, well, look at the cross. Why did he do that? He did that, that those who are plagued with this greed, this pride, this lust, these things, this slandering, this gossip, this abuse of tongues, the hate, homosexuality, he, he did that so that we would know the righteousness of God. God also tells us that he longs for all people to know him, to know the forgiveness of Christ. And I just want to bring to you the whole counsel of Scripture on this. That yes, we need to see it as a sin, but we also need to let the people know around us that we love them, that Green Pines is willing for them to come to hear the gospel, that they may know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and understand that homosexuality, though it screams in our mind, know that our sin of lying screams equally before God. And that we get consistent with that and say, by the grace of God, he's changing me. He's changing me. And that same grace of God can change you to renounce sin and train you in godliness. And the idea that we've got, we're going to treat this homosexuality sin a little bit different from uh, adultery or a little bit different from something else here. That is a tool of Satan. That keeps people from the gospel. We need to have the whole counsel of scripture to bear on this. So I would just encourage you. Say yeah. I cannot agree with same sex marriage as a viable legal option. Knowing what I know about scripture. Because the society that more and more says that's not a sin is a society that's harder and harder to share the gospel with. Not just because they don't understand it. But I have... I have some expectations that are harmful if same-sex marriage is accepted as a legal and valid option in regards to our religious rights. That being said, let's say this gets voted down, the marriage amendment gets voted down, and quickly there behind it becomes a lawsuit in which our legal code is declared unconstitutional in regards to marriage amendment, and then quickly behind it becomes uh, maybe a statement in the positive that this is a valid option, a legal option. option. Let's say that happens, and then quickly becomes that as well, discrimination laws that are already in place. It says you cannot discriminate against people. You cannot uh, teach things that will encourage discrimination. Guess where that finds me? This sermon became illegal. This sermon will face punishment of law. But let me assure you that in that moment, in that time, I will preach the same text. And I would encourage you to make the same statement. It is a lordship issue. 
It's not a country issue. It is to say, I don't always agree, I don't always understand, but I see it in the word of God. Jesus is there, he is my king, he is the one who died for me and rose again, and I'm going to follow him wherever it takes me. And it seems like in our day, in my lifetime, this is going to be the issue. And if we as a church, if we as believers don't stand there, there's no point in standing. No point in standing. I sometimes wonder what the churches were preaching in the 1970s. Some of you know the Roe versus Wade issue. Sometimes I wonder what I would be preaching in the 1860s and 50s and 40s and leading up to that slavery issue. What would we be preaching in the 1960s in the civil rights era? Sometimes I wonder what I'd be preaching in the 1700s in the Revolutionary War. But this is our generation. This is our time. I would never have asked to be dealing with the issues I'm dealing with today. The last thing I want to talk about. But I don't have a choice in this. We don't get that say. All we can do is to say, perhaps I've been birthed here for such a time as this. What does the word of God say? By the grace of God, let us stand. But I would say to you, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, there's no point in standing. No point in standing for this. And I want you to understand, the sexual ethics is not the banner of the church. It's not the banner of the church. And I, it's the only thing about the political climate in is that we're having to, to lift it up as a banner. But it's not the banner of, of the church. What's the banner of the church? Jesus is our banner. The gospel is his standard, is his proclamation. And so in all this, understand that the gospel is the heart. Don't ever get over the gospel. I don't want to make homosexuality and same-sex the, the big thing for our church. I want the gospel to be the big thing. I want Jesus to be the big thing. But I want to teach the word of God at the same time. I just want to counsel you. This is what I want to invite you to do this day. I invite you to come and make a commitment to the Lord of lordship. Say, Jesus, I will follow you. I invite you to do that. Understanding a little bit more about what that price may be. I'm not asking you to agree. I'm not asking you to put signs in your yard. I'm asking you simply to say, I want to make Jesus my Lord.